0: who utilize our children's ministry we run that through first grade you can take your children there now for those who kids stay in the service they're welcome here if they get a little fussy you can take them out in the lobby area get them settled down and come right back in we love having kids in the service with us this morning we're starting chapter 14 of our confession i'm going to read paragraph one And this particular chapter, chapter 14, deals with uh, the topic of saving faith, saving faith. And this is what the first paragraph has to say. It says, the grace of faith enables the elect to believe so that their souls are saved. It's the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced, this is how faith is produced, by the ministry of the Word, by this same ministry and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened, right? So there's a grace that's given that enables us to confess our sins and uh, repent of our sins and, and, and put our faith in Jesus Christ, right? If, that, if that's you this morning, if that's something that you've done, that's a the grace of God in your life. That is um, our sovereign Lord enabling you to do that in the ways in which He continues to grow us, nourish us this side of eternity. Is through word, prayer, and sacrament, known as the ordinary means of grace that we talk about often here at Deer Park. And so, so there. Is it is by grace that we've been saved and the Lord distributes uh, to us through these ordinary means um, the grace by which he matures us and grows us into conformity to Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 12. We're beginning chapter 12 this morning. We're going to look at a parable, some of your uh, Bibles, you know, the, these, uh, the, the titles that they give to the sections of Scripture, those obviously are not holy Scripture, those are things that translators or commentators have, have put in there to kind of help you navigate reading your Bible better, but some of you may know, know this by its title in your Bible is the parable of the tenants, uh, maybe others you know it as the, the parable of the vineyard owner. <clears throat> but allow me, I'm gonna read these first twelve verses, and then I'm gonna pray, and then we will consider our text together. But John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote these words. It says, Then he, okay, speaking of Christ, he began to speak to them in parables. Here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. Dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers, tenants or farmers, okay, that some of your translations may say. And he went into a far country. Now at vintage time, meaning at the right time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Verse four. Again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. Again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir, come, come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dresser, dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23 here. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. God, we thank you as well as we were reminded in the confession that it's because of your grace that we can be saved. And Lord, we know that it's by your grace alone that we grow, God, and and that you grow our faith. And one of the primary ways you do that is through the preaching of your word. So I pray that you would help us, that you would in fact grow us, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word clearly, God, that we would be strengthened and encouraged in our and our faith that we would see Christ more clearly, Lord, and that we would be able to apply Your Word by Your Spirit to our lives, and I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, our text it it opens up with with Jesus still at the Jewish temple, okay, and and. He's, as I said a moment ago, he's teaching a a parable, and this parable is used to help uh, bring clarity and show Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this uh, psalm passage that he's quoting, Psalm 118 verses 22 to 23, and he quotes that again at the, the conclusion of the parable. Now, Matthew and Luke give us this account as well, and, and, and they put this account uh, the same way Mark does soon after the confrontation that Jesus had with the Sanhedrin, right? And if you remember, as we've seen in our journey through Mark, Jesus, he, he would Often he often uses parables and, and he would use these stories and, and, and at times he would use them for the purpose of of uh, or he, he would always use them for the purpose of instruction but there were, there was always a concealing and a revealing aspect to the parables that he would teach and and this particular parable again, coming after the confrontation with the sanhedrin, uh, there seems to be a pretty broad understanding as to what Jesus is talking about. In this particular par- parable, so sometimes you would ha- you would see Jesus teach a parable, and he would. Um Uh, Afterwards, tell his disciples. They would ask for an interpretation, and he would give them uh, a further interpretation of the parable that perhaps he didn't give um, to uh, the broader uh, crowd that would listen to him teach. But here, there seems to be uh, an understanding even by those who aren't Christ's disciples. Okay, so there's a there's a clarity here in this particular parable, and many of the parables teach us something about how God's kingdom works, And, and this parable is no different in that regard. Now, because we have Matthew and Luke's account of this parable to harmonize with Mark, we know that he was teaching this parable to the crowd at the Jewish temple, but he was specifically applying this parable to the religious leaders, and by good and necessary consequence to the entirety of the Jewish religious system as expressed at the Jewish temple. And and that's significant for us to grasp this morning, okay? That, that's, this is the, the parable's immediate context that we need to have in mind in order to interpret this parable of Jesus correctly. Right? As we've considered the religious life at the Jewish temple over the last few weeks, we've noted that it was far from what God had commanded it to be, right? Jesus literally called it a den of what? A den of thieves. Again, we saw that a few weeks ago, right? He, he, he surveyed religious life going on, or supposed religious life going on at the Jewish temple, and his assessment the verdict, rather, that he rendered was a guilty verdict. Right. Instead of it being a place regulated by God's word and and focused primarily on the proclamation of Scripture and prayer to and for the nations, it was a place that was driven by pride. It was a place that was driven by the esteeming of self. Right. It was driven by the sin of partiality and its exclusion of the Gentiles. And it was a place of greed in its commerce. Those who gave oversight to the religious life, the Jewish temple. They were hypocrites, right? Claiming to be close to God, yet far from God. And the Jewish temple was more ritualistic than it was reverent. Now, in the parable, we, we have several key players. And, and before I mention all of the characters, I want to give us some riverbanks as we consider the parable together. Right, we, we shouldn't draw a strict comparison between the the characters in the parable with who Jesus intends for us to identify with those characters. Right, it, it's, it's, a, it's a parable, right? Parables are stories that uh, are sometimes drawn from real life to help us Uh, understand a particular truth. So parables aren't meant to be interpreted in a sort of one-to-one type of way. Rather, we should see that Jesus is using the power of illustration to help shed light on enduring kingdom Realities. So again, don't, don't push the characters that he mentions in this parable too far and risk drawing conclusions that aren't intended in this passage. I know that that may seem like an obvious guideline when interpreting parables, but it's at least one that I need to mention. So look back at the text with me, Mark 12, and, and let me just mention the characters. I'm not even going to interpret the characters let me just mention the characters and the setting of the parable okay the first character that we see <clears throat> is the vineyard owner right the, the man who planted a vineyard secondly the, the setting is an is is the actual vineyard right and the vineyard's to produce fruit that's to be harvested when the time is right right the the text that i'm reading from the tr- or the translation that i'm reading from uh, speaks of vintage time then we see those who are called vine dressers, or some of your translations may say farmers, or some of them may say tenants, right? And they were to steward the vineyard on behalf of the vineyard owner. Okay, they were to nurture it in such a way that it would be healthy, nurture it in such a way that it would produce fruit. And fruit for who? Right? Fruit for the vineyard owner. Now we also see servants that are sent. They come on behalf of the vineyard owner, right? They come in the authority of the vineyard owner to collect the harvest for the vineyard owner, but they're met with opposition by these farmers. They're met with opposition by, um, by these, these, these tenants. Several servants were sent, yet they were treated harshly. They were beaten. Some of them were even killed, and then at the, the 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 climax of the the parable, we see someone who Jesus calls the beloved son right he 's the beloved son of the vineyard owner, and he was sent by the vineyard owner to the vineyard to collect the harvest that the servants were unable to acquire and he of course is killed right he 's especially treated harshly because these farmers, these tenants they saw an opportunity. Um, to steal uh, the inheritance, right the, uh, of the vineyard son, which of course was the vineyard itself. Now, you've probably began to make some connections already, but before we get into identifying the the characters, and again, not a one to one comparison. We don't want to do a one to one comparison. But before we dive into the the further meaning of this passage, there's a secondary context that we need to take notice of in order to help us. We don't want to come to conclusions too uh, hastily. So remember, the immediate context is the Jewish temple. This is where Jesus is giving the parable, right? There's a crowd there, uh, same as last couple of weeks as we've been looking. He's primarily addressing the religious leaders uh, with the parable, and we'll get to again how it is that they knew exactly that he was addressing them. But there's an Old Testament context as well, in fact, there's there's two different places uh, in the Old Testament. These aren't the only places, but two primary places in the Old Testament um, that I'm going to take you to. The first is Isaiah chapter five, the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter five. And and by the way, the reason that we know that there's an Old Testament context is because Jesus drew from the language of the Old Testament in his telling of this parable. Okay, and and, and the other Old Testament passage of course, is Psalm 118, which he quotes from verbatim. But first Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses, says this, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with a choice vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. All right, so in this, you see just how familiar the language, language is that Jesus used in this parable. And for those that would have been familiar with the prophet Isaiah, right, upon hearing Christ's parable, they would have immediately thought of this prophecy or this um, this song or this poem, and it, and it kind of reads even like a parable in and of itself. And and there is some interpretation given here in Isaiah that should be applied in our passage in Mark, especially given the fact that Jesus was speaking at the Jewish temple and he was speaking to the Jews there, and and primarily speaking to the religious leaders, the the Sanhedrin. So harmonizing Isaiah with our parable in Mark, we can begin to identify the characters and the setting, right? The vineyard, according to Isaiah's. Prophecy? It belongs to the Lord of hosts, right? It belongs to the Lord of hosts, which means that it belongs to God, The vineyard belongs to God. This means that the owner of the vineyard in the parable that Jesus gives, it should make us think of God. It should make us think of God. And again, don't push the parable too far, but we should think of God when we read vineyard owner. Right, the vineyard itself, right? We see house of Israel, men of Judah that's connected to the vineyard itself. And expecting to find a harvest there, the Lord finds a vineyard that hasn't been cultivated. Right? He finds one that hasn't been pruned well, one that hasn't been given good soil. And the Isaiah passage says, found there is actually a cry for help. A cry for help. Now, what are the other Old Testament passages? Psalm 118. Right? Jesus, he again, he quotes directly from Psalm 118, which, by the way, Psalm 118 picks up language from Isaiah as well, specifically Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. But but this is the psalm he quotes. Look back with me. This is, again, this is in Mark 12, second part of verse 10 to 11, but it's it's also Psalm 118, verses 22, 23. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, is marvelous in our eyes. Right? In its historical setting, right, this psalm records King David with with his authority already established as, as, as the king of Israel, and he's recounting in Psalm 118, if you were to read the whole psalm, and I encourage you to do so, we don't have time to do that here this morning, but, but do this perhaps later, but, but David, his, his, his authority's been established, his kingdom's been established, he's the king of Israel, and he's recounting in this psalm the days of adversity that he had. He recounts the trials. He recounts the dangers that he faced. He recounts the times when it appeared like he was going to be destroyed, right? When things didn't look good. And he especially recounts the persecution that he had to endure and navigate from King Saul, right? The king that preceded him. Yet we know, right, God preserved David. God established David's throne. And, and and so that, that's the historical context of Psalm 118, and, and it's the historical context of the, the part of the passage that Jesus quotes in the parable. One commentator on the psalm, he says it like this, at the time when this psalm was penned, whenever that was, David, having attained to the possession of royal power and aware that he reigned for the common safety of Israel, he calls upon all the children of Abraham to ponder attentively this grace. He also recounts his dangers, the magnitude and variety of which would have slain him a hundred times had not God wonderfully secured him. From this, it's obvious that he came to the throne of the kingdom, neither by his own policy, nor by the favor of men, nor by any human means. At the same time, he informs us that he did not rashly or by wicked intrigues rush forward and take forcible possession of the kingdom of Saul, but that he was appointed and established king by God himself. Let us remember that it was the design of the Spirit. Here's the Spirit's intent. Listen closely. It was the design of the Spirit under the figure of this temporal kingdom to describe the eternal and spiritual kingdom of God's Son, even as David represented his person, So, right, this psalm, along with Isaiah 5, it should put this parable in greater focus and even show us uh, with, with, again, greater clarity Christ as the central figure of of this parable. So, so we have the immediate context, again, the Jewish temple and Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, and we have our Old Testament context. Now, here, here are a few things for us to see based on um, a, a proper contemplation of this parable. And if you're taking notes, you can, you can jot this down. The first is this God rescues his people, right? and we see God rescue his people through the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Okay, God rescues his people through the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. The, the longer that I've meditated on this passage of Scripture, <clears throat> the more it's ministered to me. Think about, just for a moment with me, I, I, I get how rich this parable is, especially in light of its Old Testament, context, especially in light of the Holy, Spirit's of God, Holy Spirit of God's intent for us as it relates to the, the enduring spiritual realities of this passage. but Jesus is according to the Isaiah prophecy, Isaiah 5 he's the well-beloved right Jesus is the well-beloved in the parable itself he's the one beloved son right? It's appropriate for us to interpret the parable that way, right the, the, the last person that sent is the one beloved son who's killed in an attempt, these at tenants, to steal the inheritance, right, to hold on to power, to hold on to influence. Elsewhere in Mark, right, we, we know of the Father's testimony about God the Son, about the second person of the Trinity, right? Mark chapter 1 verse 11, the Father speaks And he says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's this beloved son that was killed. Like in the parable. Like in the parable. Of course, when Jesus gave this parable, he had yet to die. But the parable foreshadowed his death. There was a foreshadowing of his death. Think of the, the psalm behind the parable. And just as those who were in authority persecuted, and namely King Saul, right? but, but even those who were at the beck and call of King Saul that were fiercely oppressing and persecuting David, right? just as that was happening, so those in authority, specifically religious authority, persecuted the greater David. Jesus and, and, and this persecution that he was experiencing, it was going to, to reach a tipping point that would result in the death of Jesus, right? The death of God's son. And what seemed like defeat for David when he was surrounded by his enemies, it was not defeat, Right? It was not defeat. Instead of being defeated, God established David's throne. And because we have the closed canon of Scripture, we know that what looked like defeat for the greater David, right, what looked like defeat, the defeat of Jesus when he was beaten and nailed to a cross until he died, it wasn't. Right? It wasn't. Again, that's the significance of Jesus using the parable to help bring clarity to the passage in Psalm 118. Hear the passage again. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And here's how the Holy Spirit wants us to interpret Jesus's teaching here. Christ, who as I mentioned last week, was despised and rejected, Isaiah 53.3, right? Despised and rejected by the religious leaders, and, and what they hoped was his demise was actually the path to victory. It was actually the path to victory. It was actually the path to life, to life everlasting. And it was the answer, the ultimate answer, to this cry for help that we see in the Isaiah passage. Here's something else for us. The Psalm 118 passage Jesus quoted for, and I thought this was interesting, it's also the one speaking of cry for help in that... that Isaiah passage, but the Psalm 118 passage that Jesus quotes at the conclusion of the parable is uh, a, a part of that Psalm 118 passage, includes what the people chanted as he rode in as king on a donkey into Jerusalem leading up to the Jewish temple where he surveyed and rendered a judgment on the Jewish temple. Psalm 118 verses 25 to 26 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Right, this cry for help. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. Right, here it is in Mark, just a few verses earlier than our text this morning. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What's Jesus doing if not preparing his people Those who belong to God, right? Those who were a part of his vineyard, he's preparing them for victory. He's preparing them for victory, This is the the build-up to that when we consider it in its proper context, right? He's, He's teaching them, he's preparing them, he's telling them, I'm the answer to the cry for help. Saying I'm the greater David. I'm the beloved son. I'm he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'll be rejected. I'll be killed as the beloved son was in the parable. But fear not, my rejection is a part of the plan. There's going to be a resurrection. I'll be the cornerstone. I've come to help. And what is the response of people that see that, that know that? Right, us being able to look, again, we're, we live in such a blessed age to be able to again, have the, the, uh, the completed canon of Scripture, right? to, to have the, this, this full picture here as we contemplate this together. Like, what's the response of people that belong to Jesus? What should be res- the response of those who have been rescued, to those who have been delivered, to those who have been helped? We look at the resurrection of Jesus and say along with David in Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. day is made possible because of the resurrection. So we see this redeeming work that's foreshadowed in this parable, right, we see Jesus speak of his humiliation, but we see in the way that he utilizes the, particularly Psalm 118, we see him allude to his exaltation, right, and it's both the humiliation of Christ, his, his uh, beginning with God eternal, right, the Son of God who's eternal, humbling himself through taking on frail human flesh, right, that was the beginning of his humiliation. We see that, and we see his exaltation. That he's resurrected, that he is in fact the cornerstone, meaning that he is the stone from which the church is built. Right? That's the first thing. Secondly, and of course related, but God has one people and one way of being reconciled to him. God has one people and one way of being reconciled to him. Now, bear with me a moment just because I need to flesh. Some things out for us to see this point a bit more clearly, but I haven't yet identified for us who the vine dressers actually were. we 've been, we've been talking a lot about them, right who, the, who the tenant, you know the tenants, but i haven't specifically said that the tenants, the farmers, uh, the vine dressers, they were the religious leaders. And we should think religious leaders when we see the tenants or the farmers uh, or the vine dressers. In fact, mark 's commentary at the end of the parable ensures that we know that the religious leaders knew exactly who Jesus was talking about and that he was rebuking them and pronouncing a judgment over them. We see, again, verse 12 here, they sought, speaking of the re- religious leaders, right, they sought to lay hands on him, right, and, and not to pray over him, right, <laughs> right, they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. Matthew's account, it makes it even, even clearer for us. Matthew 21, verses 45 and 46, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him, the multitudes took him for a prophet, right? Similar to that of, as it related to their fear of answering the question that Jesus posed to them about whether they thought John the Baptist was from God or from man, right? But these religious leaders, and, and specifically the ones who gave oversight at the Jewish temple, they were, they were being rebuked by Jesus in this parable, and Jesus pronounced in this parable a judgment over them. And, and these men, again, these religious leaders, they were without excuse. They had no excuse. Right? They were charged to be good stewards, they were charged to be good tenants, good farmers. They were to shepherd God's people in a way that reflected the loving heart of the Lord. They were supposed to direct God's people toward God, toward being more God-centered. They were to um, point God's people toward His preserving work of them and His faithfulness to Him. They were to proclaim the Scriptures without partiality, right? Instead, they were concerned about pointing people to themselves, right? They were concerned about they themselves being reverenced. They were concerned about their be, them being respected. They were concerned about their prestige and their honor and their wealth. And in verses 2 to 5 of, of the parable in, in Mark 12, you see Jesus speaks uh, of servants uh, that the vineyard owner sent, that, that preceded the vineyard owner sending his only son. And when we read servants, we should think prophets. We should think prophets. One commentator says that the priests, right, that were being rebuked, but priests were always there. In other words, the priests were the, uh, God uh, used priests to ordinarily grow and minister and shepherd his people. The prophets were sent um, as, extraordinary, as extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary supply. And as prophets, we know that um, we we know that the prophets they 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 declared one message. Okay, they, they they pointed people to the one true eternal God. Right, they addressed idolatry and and they brought into greater focus, greater clarity the Messiah, the Christ, who we know is Jesus. Yet these religious leaders they rejected the prophets of God because in the, the the prophets of god they they exposed uh the their um their counterfeit religious system that they had established the the prophets increasingly exposed the ugliness of the hearts of those religious leaders and it put in danger prophets put in danger their power their influence again our text last week exposed their rejecting of of who jesus calls the the greatest of the prophets which was John the Baptist, but we also see Jesus accuse them elsewhere of not truly believing one of their most revered prophets, who was Moses, right? Think John chapter 5, verses 46 to 47. Jesus says to the religious leaders, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he, speaking of Moses, wrote about me, right? But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And think of the judgment that jesus renders in this parable think of the judgment he puts it like this therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do what is he going to do about it's as if jesus he's looking at these religious leaders and i can imagine he's pointing out what are we going to do about you that's the question he poses he doesn't give them time to answer he answers going to come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. That's what's going to happen, The owner of the vineyard, God, will come and he'll destroy the priests and he'll give the vineyard to others. And listen, God literally did destroy the priests, and he did this by destroying the priesthood. He did this by destroying the priesthood. Think about it this way. For starters, at the death of Christ, the temple of the curtain was what? It was torn from what? Top to the bottom, right? It was top to the bottom, right? Signifying there is one mediator, right? There is one way to have peace with God, and that's through Christ, who we know to be our eternal high priest, right? Secondly, think of the destruction of the temple, the Jewish temple in 70 AD, this was a judgment of God over Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed just as Christ predicted that it would be destroyed within the same generation. We see that in Matthew chapter 24, within the same generation of those who lived during Christ's first advent. We can't underestimate the significance of these things, right? The curtain being torn, the temple being destroyed. It shows us that God has one people, the church, and it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, look at how Peter uses Psalm 118 in his epistle. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Peter says this, "...coming to him as to a living stone," Right? Christ rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious you also as living stones are being built up in uh, built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he's precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone, and look, Familiar language here. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. And then get this. This is what he says about those who are in Christ. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Or listen how Peter elsewhere, he addresses the Sanhedrin, the very people that Jesus addressed in this parable. says this in Acts chapter 4 verses 8 to 12, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, which by the way means he couldn't have done it with, otherwise he would not have been able to say the things that he was going to say in front of these powerful people, right? Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the quote, stone which was rejected by you builders, right? More clarity there for us, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then Peter goes on, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? God is one people, the church, and God has one way to be made right through the God-man. Through the Messiah, again, the eternal high priest who's Jesus. Right? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, you can be made right through Christ Jesus. There's no other way to gain salvation, Christ is your salvation. But if you're a Christian here this morning, marvel at your Savior who's made Himself known to you. Marvel at your Savior who says that you've been made into a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. And remember this so that you will proclaim the excellencies, the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And if you're not a Christian this morning, come. Come. Right? Respond to the free offer of the gospel. It doesn't matter, again, what your background is. Come to Christ. Come in repentance from your sin. Come knowing that Christ died for your sin. Come knowing that you can be made right with God if only you'd pl- pl- place your trust in your Savior, Jesus. God has one people. No distinctions. God has one way of being made right with him, and that is through Christ, who's sufficient. He's sufficient. Last thing we should see is this, and we should praise God for this, but this will be, we, we, could, we could spend a, a lot more time on any of these points, but the third thing I want us to see is authority is limited by God, and those who have authority are especially accountable to God. Authority is limited by God, and those who have authority are especially accountable to God. So there this means there's one absolute authority. There's one absolute authority, and that is our sovereign Lord. Our sovereign Lord is the only one with absolute authority. He's the Lord over our lives, regardless of us acknowledging it or not. He's the Lord over our homes, he's the Lord over our church, he's the Lord over the state. Right? He's Lord, and His Lordship is not contingent on anyone or anything. Right? His Lordship is not contingent on anyone or anything, and the Lord showcases His absolute and unlimited authority in this passage, and at the same time, He demonstrates the limited authority of His cre- His creatures through the judgment of the religious leaders. Right? He shows that as creatures, they are accountable to God regardless of how they feel about the matter. Right? The religious leaders, upon hearing Jesus preach and teach and render this verdict, it did not soften their hearts. Right? They didn't say, well, let us submit. And their lack of submission in no way thwarted God's ability to judge them. Right? He judged them. He rendered the verdict guilty. He did this by making the priesthood obsolete, obsolete. He Did it through, quite literally, the destruction of the temple, and the Jewish wars. And for those of us who have positions of authority in various spheres, again, whether that be in our homes or in the workplace or here, elders at the church or those that are in government, that we're expected to exercise our God-given authority, which again comes from God, right? He's the giver of authority, right? But we're to exercise our authority in a way that demonstrates our submissiveness to Christ's authority, right? We have to think of ourselves as tenants, as farmers of God's vineyard in some shape, form, or fashion, right? We should look to Christ as the ultimate good steward, But we should draw strength from him as well, and we should reflect, again, by his grace, by the strength of God's might, his good stewardship in whatever he has entrusted to us. In the parable of the faithful steward, if you're familiar with that parable, Jesus said, quote, For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask more, Luke 12, 48. And there's a lot to this parable. There's much in this parable that I've, I've had to neglect, but may we give God glory that he alone has absolute authority. And this is a good thing, right? Because he's good, right? God is good, and we're not. So it's good we don't have absolute authority. May we give God glory that Christ has saved us through his humiliation and exaltation. And may we give glory that God has one people, the church. And the church is the church because Christ has presented her without spot, without wrinkle, before the throne of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had together. In your word, we pray that you would use it to strengthen us, encourage us, Lord. And God, that in turn, we would seek to honor you with our the things that we think and meditate about Lord and the way that we behave Lord help us to see Christ as sufficient and help that to shape our character Lord and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well this is the part of our service where we come to the Lord's table and if you are a guest with us we don't we don't require membership for you to be able to participate in the Lord's supper what we ask is that you are A Christian who has been given a Trinitarian baptism, and that you are walking in repentance and in faith in Christ alone. And so, if that's you this morning, we welcome you to the table. If that's not you, we just ask that you would uh, stay seated during um, our observance of the Lord's Supper, as this is a meal for God's people. And, elders, you can go ahead and take your place at the stations. I'm going to read our short devotion. title experiential knowledge as christians we know doctrinally that we share union with jesus that his righteousness is our righteousness that his bodily and eternal resurrection means our bodily and eternal resurrection we know that jesus is our spotless lamb who took away our sin forever but does that knowledge of all of the all of these things does it comfort us in other words how do you feel about it Our knowledge of this, our union with King Jesus, shouldn't be the kind of knowledge that you have in your head to take a test. The kind of knowledge that I'm talking about is found in the words of Peter in his response to Jesus in John 6, 69. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That word know isn't just an intellectual assent to facts. This sort of knowing requires a tasting of the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, Psalm 34.8. It's the type of knowledge that you experience by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it in turn transforms you. It makes you a new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl. Our experiential knowledge of our union of Christ should be transformative. It should increasingly, Lord's day by Lord's day, shape us. That doesn't mean that we chase this emotional high, nor is the Christian life and the truthfulness of who Christ Jesus is determined by our feelings on any given day, but our lives should be transformed and transforming. In other words, he who began a good work and you will complete that good work, Philippians 1.6. So come and taste and be reminded of the goodness of God in your life. Come and ingest the bread and cup, and as you do, remember just how closely your life is associated with your Savior. Come in gratitude. Come to worship. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And so if you would stand and you can begin to make your way to the tables. And as you do, we'll remind you Christ is for you. And just by way of reminder, wine is on the inside, grape juice on the outside.